0: Hi, it's Dave. Welcome. Today, I'm joined by Amjad Massad. He is the CEO and founder of Replit. It's a fast-growing startup that's trying to democratize programming by allowing people to code and collaborate from the web browser. Welcome, Amjad.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm super excited. Um, I think you guys are at an intersection of so many interesting things in the world. You have software, coding, collaboration, education, remote work, technology, so many things are intersecting and you guys are doing some really fascinating stuff trying to democratize programming, this is a huge historic trend, international global trend, Um, so I want to do a deep dive into your company, your product, your story, but also how you view the future, how you view technology and software Playing out in the future, and I think this is going to help me and many others as well. Um, so I wanted to kind of give you some time to kind of go over. Um, actually, before we do that, I w- wanted to just give a quick overview on Repl.it. Um, where are you, where are you guys based? How many employees do you have, and when did you guys get started?
1: Yeah, we're we just uh, made a you know big uh, announcement about going global. And we made it at two uh, two points with going global. One is we replicated our compute infrastructure throughout the world, specifically excited about India um, and Asia, where we now have servers and people who are coding on Replit there actually have a much better performance now. And the other point that we made was that we're hiring globally and uh you know we started uh like very much in san francisco and we're like very much everyone's on site everyone's in the office we had you know we're doing the whole kind of startup like live at work and like you know your your life is is your work and and we had a lot of fun doing that and you know to be frank it uh kind of that reduced delay and that high bandwidth communication makes it really easy for very early stage startups to get a lot done in a matter of year or two. But now we're hiring and scaling globally. Uh, we actually have team members uh, in uh, Europe, uh, uh, India, and, uh, and and Palestine, um, and uh, and of course in, in the US across all the US time zones. But we're only actually, we're only 22 people right now, 22 full-time, we have a few interns. At Reflet. we always have interns and I'm sure we'll get into that, but our uh, a lot of our audience, a lot of uh, the people who are um, getting into Replit are actually the high school, college age um, kids, and uh, we're discovering talent from our community, and uh, and we typically hire from our community, and uh, you know that's that makes it extremely fun to always have users and you know developers that are building on our platform are also working for us. And, um, you know, who, who's better to, like, invent the tools uh, except the people that are using them. And so um, and so but, but, you know, we we sort of like grown somewhat conservatively. I think you see a lot of startups you know, grow much faster if, in terms of headcount. We never made headcount a goal, so we uh, try to be as efficient as possible. 2016, 17 we were two people, the founders, me and Haya. My actually, she's my wife as well. And then we hired our first engineer, and then second engineer. 2018 we were four people. Uh, we got into YC. Uh, we raised our seed round from uh, Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, I think at the time it was like total six million, the entire seed round. And um, and uh, in you know 20 um, uh, 2019 um we were uh we were some like eight people twenty twenty sixteen 16 people and so now we're 22 people i think we're going to end the year with 32 i like the doubling year of a year you know uh so it just makes it like a neat number uh, <laughs> eventually we'll go to infinity. Um, But, but, you know, uh, we try to always focus our goals. Yeah, I think a a lot of Silicon Valley companies kind of size each other up by how many people work at the company. And so we try to take a different approach and like, how many users are we serving, and like not expand headcount to the point that like you know you, you have so many people and we're always kind of a little bit under resourced and I think that's a good thing to kind of um, for a startup to to have.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, some of the the fastest growing startups have had crazy amount of millions and millions of users per one engineer, you know, served. Exactly. Um, what is um what is your current kind of user statistics like? How many users are using your 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 app right now, and how has growth been? You know, how has it looked over the past um I guess four four or five years since you guys started. Yeah, so it was a side project
1: before that, so it goes a little bit before that. But um, uh, growth been very consistent. Uh, when you're you know building uh, something a little bit more niche like a coding uh startup uh you know you can't expect like social network type growth right uh but we've actually had a pretty decent growth for startup that's targeting a niche like that and um uh you know we've been at least doubling year over year for the past few years and now we have six more than six million registered users um and and that'll probably double as well um and and we have millions of active users um And, um, and a subset of them are also developing websites and apps that are hosted on Replit as well. And a lot of them like a, you know, uh, subset, but that non-significant subset actually, uh, spend their lives on, (laughs) on the platform. Like maybe we can get into some of the stories there, but, um you know, it's, uh, you know, especially the younger folks are, you know, coding so much and learning so much and expanding their knowledge so much in building businesses. We've had, you know, we've had 15 year olds, 20 year olds building businesses with thousands of dollars in MRR. um, And that's been incredibly exciting uh, for us. A lot of people landed jobs and, and, and things like that.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Where, do you have any geographic breakdown of kind of where you're, users are located generally
1: yeah uh, so um, originally like the US was was dominating uh, by a lot Uh, and then we you know we see it's interesting we see certain countries light up uh, at the same time so so like I remember in 2017 we started seeing uh, Europe uh, coming on on the map and we literally see see them on like Google Analytics when we used to use that we kind of ripped it off recently but um just because we don't want to track our users uh we don't want google to track our users but uh you know we we just see the map of like you know uk then france then and and you could see the kind of the dynamic of growth and it was very interesting and very intriguing to see how that growth happened the strongest the strongest growth right now is is coming from kind of more developing parts of the of the world right now i think you know india is the strongest one but we're seeing really strong growth in the middle east and africa as well
0: yeah fascinating stuff um let's see i uh, want to go ahead and dive into kind of what is replit um before we get started um for those who aren't who are listening who aren't into coding or software um, could you explain kind of the concept of a REPL, you know, and what that inspiration for your name and your product was?
1: Yeah. So um, back back in school when I was going to study computer science, for every subject, you had to install gigabytes of software, typically pretty crappy software, to be honest, to uh, to start coding. So Java, you had to install NetBeans and and what have you and GDK and like all the sorts of things like that. Just to type a single line of code. Um, however, there there was prior art for programming environments that were lighter weight and that were interactive. So you know typically you write you know in you know standard tooling, you write your your software and then you compile it, and then after you compile it, you run it. and that and then you know after you see the output, maybe you want to edit it again. And that cycle takes really long time. Uh, because of the the way the tool is built, the REPL, which stands for Read Eval Print Loop, is a continuous is a more closed feedback loop between the human user and the computer, where the computer is sort of like reading what you're typing as you're typing it, so that's the read part, and then evaluating uh, the commands that you're typing, printing the results. So read, eval, print, and then loop, get started again. And so you have this interactive session. It's almost, I like to describe it as a conversation with a computer. So you go from writing letters to the computer to having a conversation with the computer. So the, the old way of writing things is this like long form, write everything and then run it. Now it's like more interactive. And so that was the inspiration for... Uh, what what became uh, eventually
0: Replit? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, can you uh, go ahead and do a demo of kind of maybe what is Rep- Replit? I mean, what's cool about you, I think your product is is almost kind of like you have to see it, you know, to to understand it. Um, I'm going to go ahead and I'll, I'll switch to a, a screen share uh, mode here, um, and we'll go ahead and yeah, your screen is up and uh, your thumbnail is oh. in the corner. Go for it.
1: So this is, uh, this is my Repl.it homepage. And from here, I can create uh, a REPL. And the way to think about a REPL, it's almost like your machine in the cloud. So um, I like JavaScript, so I'm going to pick Node.js. Um, and I'm going to um, just like have the name that it gave me. It gave me this funny name, so I'm just going to have that. And click Create REPL. And now I have a fully loaded machine in the cloud that I can code on. So it has this interactive element that we talked about here. I can give it commands like 1 plus 1. What is 100 times 20? Give me a random uh, number. Um, So you're having that conversation that we talked about. But I can also here uh, start writing the simplest program that a lot of Kids like to write, which is, uh, you know, what is your name? That's the name, and then print that name. Print in JavaScript is console log. So we hit run. What is your name? My name is Amjad, and then you print the name. Maybe we want to say hello, name. Hit run. Amjad. So I'm editing my code uh, and using it as I'm editing. So that's the kind of fast feedback loop, and this is one of the innovations that we have. It just makes it a lot
0: easier to learn and explore how coding works. Cool. Could you um could you actually continue to to do some more lines of code? I think this is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, let's yeah. Uh, let's keep going. So, um, so maybe we want to build something that um. So, maybe you want to build something that asks you for your name and then maybe um, asks you for uh, your last name and then saves it in a a cloud database. So, let's say last name. Uh, So, we said hello name. And then let's say, like, what is your last name? Um, And then, then we'll say hello. And then the first name, and then the last name, and hit run. And this is my so we're constructing the program as we go. Now we have this really cool feature called database. And database, uh, where traditionally, if you want to go to Amazon or Google and kind of provision a database, it'll take you hours, if not days. Here, um, Raplet comes with a built in database, so it even allows you to. Um, it even writes the code for you in a way. So here it inserted the uh, the requirements uh, for for this thing. Here we're constructing a new database, and um, let's do set name, and the value is name plus space plus last. And then is what happens after that. So for now, I'm gonna just run this code again. It installed the database. It knew what I wanted to do, and then we're back into the program. And now we have the name saved. And just to make sure, I'm just gonna uh, I'm just gonna delete uh, this piece of code, and I'm gonna uh, actually uh, get the database, get the um, Get the thing that I stored. And then here we're going to console log the value. The value is Amjad Masad, So we remembered who you were. Mm-hmm. And from here on, I can sort of, uh, you know, I mean, maybe it's worth pausing here and like recognizing that you have provisioned a cloud machine, you have provisioned a database, and now you're writing and storing things in the database all in the cloud without leaving your browser window. Mm -hmm. I can take this URL, and I can share it with a friend, and um, let's go back to the earlier code, um, and let's, uh, can you see my incognito window?
0: Yes, I can, yeah.
1: So now, this is my user, can come into this REPL, and can use the application that we built for them. So so now, uh, I am gonna be Mm -hmm. Joe, what is my last name, Rogan. Something went wrong here. Um, typically, what happens is we have an application. Sorry, I'm not sure what went wrong exactly, here, but that's how demos worked. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: typically, we'll have it. We, that'll also run in the entire application, and actually save the values. I actually think I know what what uh, what happened here. Um, Cool. So the program ran, I now create a, a program in the cloud and share it with someone else. Uh, they can react to it, they can comment on it, or they can, they can even download it and play with it locally. Um, perhaps more interesting, as you become a little bit more advanced, you want to build a web app. You don't want a, just a command line application. So here I'm pulling up the Express um, example. Express is a JavaScript framework that allows us to build web applications. So. Here, the uh, one unique thing about Replit is that it figured out that you wanted to install Express without you installing it. and So one innovation that we have at Replit is um, the environment figure out figures out the intent of the user and does a lot of things for them automatically. So, Whereas previously you had to learn a lot of these tools, in this case, we uh, automate the workflow for you, so you can focus on your code and your code first. Um, so at any moment now, it's gonna uh, open up the web page, and it should say "Hello Express Up." So we have now a, an application that we're uh, working in the in the cloud. I can also open this in a new tab, share it. Now we have an app accessible via URL in the cloud. Um, if I go to this app here, you can see that's gonna update uh, that it's. Uh, it's going to show the the New Express app, so you know the, the same app that you're sharing with people. It's going to update as you're updating that app. So that's also another thing that makes it super easy to ship applications on Repl.it because you don't have to go this through this laborious process of uh, you know updating, creating new versions, and so on and so forth. Um, I can also use a database uh, in this part of the app, but let me now showcase some of the um, multiplayer functionality. So I can share this. Say I can share this with Dave or someone else. Um, another thing I could do, I can invite people uh, to this app. So, say I'm gonna, uh, I'm just gonna invite myself in this case. So now I can see my cursor from the other web page right here, and I can see myself typing. And if I switch here, I can see the same. I can see the exact same. Uh, I can see the updates happen in real time. And on top of that, you can kind of realize that this kind of looks like Google Docs. What I can do is it can also add comments. So what, what does this comment do? If I switch to the other tab, we have this feature called Threads, and Threads shows you what uh, you know the conversation that's happening inside your REPL. And here I can say, oh, I was just trying things out. And of course, you can see it in context here. I can resolve it. Um, if I hit resolve, this comment is resolved. So this makes it super exciting and super easy to um, uh, to uh, to kind of collaborate with other people and build apps with others. Now, when I am done with my app, I can also share it to the Replit community. And the Replit community is a, actually, let me show you the, um, the landing page here. Uh, we we have uh, uh, we have apps that are trending in the community. So we have this community space. Someone built an app, a Python game that they made, and people are commenting on this app. This game is fun. Um, you can you can run this app in this uh, in the community space. You can upvote it. Uh, you can react to it. We have a bunch of tutorials for people to that are contributed by the community. You can learn at Lua, for example, here, or a Python tutorial. Um, We also have a bunch of templates, so you don't have to start from scratch. So, you know, I can create a new REPL, I can say like personal blog site and create that. And now, you know, with two clicks, I have a blog on the internet. So here uh, here I have an entry and so, can say hello Dave run and this is a blog entry called hello Dave and you can you can do that for everything from e-commerce sites to to games Um, we have you know a lot of different templates you can select from Uh, discord bots people like discord bots to automate things on their server slack bots and um, maybe finally, just one thing uh, for the more professional uh, users out there, um, the set of collaboration tools that we built made it makes it really exciting to, um, to work within a team. So teams is a new feature that we have. We have teams for education. We have teams for friends that are uh, you know building things together. but we also have teams for business. that's still in alpha, but it's coming soon. So this is the Replit team. That uh, you know, it's the team behind Repl.it, and actually, this is my uh, my teammates and I I, I can t- I can see exactly what they're what they're working on. So I can jump uh, to my teammate Patrick, and this is live. So they might be doing something embarrassing. I hope they're not. Um, let me see if, if he's around. Hey, what's up to? Um, let me run what he's up to. Oh, he, he's building the, the new Replit newsletter. Um, that's pretty cool. Uh, I can kind of review it. I can leave a comment on it. Um, I can just uh, ask, uh, is this newsletter in HTML? So like a legit question I might want to ask. Maybe he's not—he's uh, busy or not around or on a different tab. Uh, let me go to uh, to Connor here. This is uh, what we use uh, uh, for user interviews. So he's—he he might be interviewing someone. Um, so for example, this is a user interview that that uh, you know uh, some folks on the team done for Teams for Business. And I can uh, and and here it's this is a markdown file. So markdown is a markup type file that makes it easy to write uh, content using uh, plain text. And uh, we use this to kind of write notes and collaborate on notes and send messages to each other. And so in this case, I'm reading the uh, the user interview that uh, that happened. Um, and uh, you know we like to use Replit uh, as a way to share information internally. Um, so this is another feature kind of for more business advanced developers. Um, you know, the, 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 the platform is, is feature-packed. Uh, I could spend hours and hours kind of describing uh, some of the best features that we have, but maybe to summarize, if you can remember one thing, Replit makes it the, it's the easiest place to start coding online, it's the easiest place to ship your app and share it with other people, and it's the easiest and the best place to collaborate with others. Mm-hmm.
0: Awesome, yeah. No, that was super helpful demo there. Um, so, Amjad, I'm wondering. Um, let's try to bridge the gap here. Um, for those experienced in software, they probably will look at this and understand what you're doing in terms of how you're simplifying, you know, the the programming environment and taking out the friction. But for those who, let's say, who aren't too familiar with what it takes to get to get started coding, can you explain kind of? what your value proposition here is compared to, for example, setting up, setting up my own coding environments and all the plugins and you know all that extra stuff that goes into it. Like what are you doing that's, um, that's what are you offering, I guess, you know, the end, end consumer, customer?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, traditionally, um, say you want to uh, code in Java. Um, the the first thing that you have to do is you have to download a compiler, a Java compiler and runtime, and uh, that's actually an Oracle product. So you have to go to Oracle and download a multiple gigabytes of uh, Java. So now you have the system dependency for Java, um, and you have to in- install it. And by the way, if uh, your platform is locked down, say at school, you need an IT uh, administrator to help you do that. So it's not always the simplest. Now that you've downloaded the compiler, you need the, the, the IDE. IDE stands for Integrated Development uh, Environment. So this is the editor and debugging tools that help you write the software. And so Java has a bunch of paid uh, products that you can use, but there are a few products, say NetBeans, uh, I used it in school. You go to the NetBeans site, it's an open source Java IDE. You download that, that's also multiple gigabytes of, of data. You download that, you install it on your machine. Let's say, you know, uh, you're very smart and you figured out, uh, you know, everything required to link your Java IDE to your Java compiler and you start writing code. Um, Now you've written code, you've iterated on your program like we just did, and you want to share it with a friend, you want to share it with your professor, you want to get feedback on it, you want to share it on the internet, uh, what do you do? So maybe there are a lot of different sharing sites. So maybe GitHub is a, is a sharing site. So you wanna go use GitHub and uh, what GitHub is, is, uh, is based on a, a tool called Git. So Git is a way of um, sharing and collaborating on software. Um, so now you have to go learn Git, you have to download Git, you have to install Git. And then once you have Git locally in your machine, you can Git push to GitHub. And you you kind of now kind of you know move your software over to, to GitHub and now you can share it. So what I just described, you know, even the most profession uh, among us w- and, and the smartest uh, will probably take multiple hours, if not days, to actually get. Uh, and with Replit, we actually make that entire process into seconds. So it's a it's orders of magnitude better. It's you know ten hundred thousand X in some cases better than the current way standard way of doing things now you know your, your audience uh, probably knows when it, with any innovative kind of nascent technology um, you have one axis where you're so much better at but you have other areas where you're underdeveloped at so for example you know uh, for advanced software development you know just to give you a balanced uh, picture of like not replet as is, is not a place to, to, at a place to, to replace all software just yet. We'll get there. But you know, in some cases, uh, you know, I, I showed you how it's easier to share and live update software. In some cases, you want to introduce more tools like GITs and other tools to make sure that you're pushing software, you're pushing high quality software uh, by doing code reviews by having staging uh, areas um, and by introducing just more uh, processes uh, in order to ensure that the code that you're pushing is is, is is good. We're building a lot of that infrastructure out. We have a lot of it in experiments internally that we'll be releasing. But at, at the very least, if you're just starting with programming, it doesn't make sense to go through the pain that I described, just go to Replit and start coding.
0: Yeah. I mean. It also seems like one of the things you're doing there is you're taking care of the hosting issue, right? So, let's say I'm coding in my environment and you know I run it on my local you know machine. Now I need to find a place to host this, but then right. you know I push it, but then also it's like I need to find a place to host a database. But I have to learn about you know how to deploy and manage a data an online database, which is a whole nother thing. But you're doing that just all within the browser. And so, I mean, it seems like um, a lot of this stuff, um, you have this empathy, it feels like, to the to the the user. You, you're trying to make it easier, right? Where does this come from? Kind of this idea of trying to make it easier, taking out the friction, you know? Um, making coding kind of perhaps what coding ought to be and not mm-hmm. dealing with all the extra stuff that comes along with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, just to show your point is can I can I yeah, share my screen again? It. Yeah, so uh, a lot of the things we uh, so this is our blog, our blog application. It is it has edit on Replit here. Our blog is actually a um, is host is written in Node.js and hosted in Replit. You can see the the real yes. live logs that are happening here. Some people actually send messages to our logs. They they discovered that and they they've been playing with it. Um, And like we give, you know, feedback to each other on our blog uh, and we uh, kind of write uh, blogs together. So we collaboratively are building our blog. That's just one example of something that's running in production. So you can see the domain is even linked here and, um, you know, it's fully in the browser. We never uh, touched uh, any AWS or uh, Google Cloud or Azure for for this uh, for this app. It was totally developed from scratch on Replit and uh, and use all the Replit goodness. Um, so cool. this is one example with, of with like
0: your yeah with your with your um, blog. Are you guys using a database or just putting blog posts into files?
1: Yeah, in this case, the blog posts are into files, okay. but it uses database for analytics and things like oh, that. Okay,
0: got it. Yeah, I mean, I know, like for example, let's say a person. Um, is trying to kind of fork or hack or play around with let's say uh, a a website or let's say a github project so you're you're browsing and you're wanting to download this github project but then it's not as easy as sounds sometimes because you have to you download the code you might run it on your server but let's say you want to run it for other people to experiment you have to find some place to host it you have to set up all the database, you know, stuff, all the third party plugins and then run this up. But this could take this could take days, if not weeks, you know, to, to set this yeah. up. It's not as easy as just click, you know, I'm like, but it seems like that's a whole different paradigm on what Replit's doing is you're like, hey, here's a project. Instead of downloading a GitHub project and going through all this hassle, you just you just right there can just, you know, fork fork it, play around with it, change it, share it and all of the hosting, all of the database management, all that stuff is, you know, you guys are taking care of. I mean, is that kind of where you guys are? I mean, is that kind of um, part of part of the appeal, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, it's, it's
1: totally part of the appeal. It's the initial uh, uh, value prop, like we're talking about. It's the totally the initial core value prop, and that's why teachers are excited about Replit. That's why uh, students are excited about Replit. That's why people who are just getting into programming are excited about Replit, because we, we take care of all that stuff. Um, you know, where that empathy, uh, comes from, uh, you know, uh, you, you know, I talked a little bit about when I was going to school and running into all these problems and that partly, you know, it just felt kind of insane to me that, you know, in Arabic, I'm not sure if it's, uh, in English, uh, we have the saying, um, the shoemaker walks barefoot and what that, what that means is. Sometimes the folks that are uh, responsible for making something or inventing something usually ignore themselves. So software engineers uh, build a lot of the amazing things that we're everything, like all the software is built by software engineers. You know, Google Docs is in the browser. Uh, everything's in in the cloud, except for software engineering. How how ma- that's madness, right? Like why? And you start asking that question, why, you quickly realize it's a collection of both heart problems and uh, cultural issues and, and dogma. Um, so on the dogma side, one of the things that I ran into when I tried to sol- started to try to solve this problem was that, hey, like no real software engineer codes in the browser. You know, there's the like, you know, the your engineers engineer and like you have to go through the pain in order to kind of realize the title of an engineer. And that's that's totally crazy to me. And the reason I think it's it's crazy and like we should we should do better is because I think there's right now a software priesthood. Right. So there are there's like this, you know, we're on Silicon Valley. We're making all the software and, you know, all other parts of the world. They're consuming our software. And it's totally centralized. Um, and the reason I call it priesthood is because, you know, a lot of ways we we are gatekeeping. We're we're not making it easy to, for people to get into programming. So some of the kind of experience there. Actually, the creator of Git, uh, someone asked him, uh, "Why didn't you?" So the creator of Git is also the creator of Linux. So he's an amazing guy he he like you know he changed the world and he's great but i'll just to show you some of the like how these folks uh how we think as an industry um someone asked him like why didn't you write git and c++ he's like i wrote it in c because i want all the c++ idiots to to not uh, contribute to to git (laughs) and so uh you know every um every software engineer, every language on the continuum of like language purity. So like you have the C and the, like maybe the Haskell and things like that. They look down on the folks that are like maybe just starting out or using a higher level language. And, you know, it, it, it goes all the way. Um, and, you know, that's part of the dogma that I kind of faced already on as this kind of gatekeeping. And I was, uh, and I felt like, you know, uh, you know, that's a bad reason. one, two software has to be democratized. Like everything in history of technology goes through these phases of having this priesthood. Like it, the, the, you know, reading and writing literally was in the priesthood, right? In, in medieval Europe. Uh, if, if you wanted to read the Bible, you have to go to the priest because he, uh, he can only read, like he can't read, right? You know, when the printing press came out, it sort of democratized access to, to books. And, uh, and, you know, in, in a couple hundred years, uh, you went from, you know, single digit, uh, percent literacy to, 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 almost uh, complete, uh, literacy. And uh, I think the same thing will happen in software where we're going from a place where, uh, like what, uh, less than 1% know how code works to probably, a high percentage, uh, you know, uh, of the world that actually know how, uh, how to, at, at least if not writing code day to day, actually know how code works, know how software works. And there's a lot of uh, important benefits that come from that. So when the when people learned how to read and write, we had things like the scientific revolution. We had things like the industrial revolution. We had things like liberal democracy, all these things. Are downstream from uh, literacy, in my opinion, a lot of uh, you know people, uh, you know, concur. A lot of uh, philosophers and, and scientists kind uh, of believe the same. Um, and it, 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 it's almost hard to imagine what the world would look like when we have more software competency uh, in the world. I think it's going to be uh, hugely positive for economic growth and uh, you know for just societal welfare.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, when I look at some of the the examples and what you you know showed here, um, it's strike one thing strikes me is like if I'm you know starting out with coding, um, I get I can get something up so fast right through Replit, meaning I get mm-hmm. a, a URL that could it's a published website just to, within a minute basically right, and any of the changes can just be instantly just deployed. Um, combination, I guess, of ease of use, but also, um, you know, it's hosted in the cloud, you've got, you know, database managed, you got all this other stuff. Um, and it's interesting, because it feels like there's a couple ways of learning coding, like, it feels like there's a traditional approach, kind of institutional approach, where you're set, people sit you down, and then they teach you from a high level, or they teach you all the, 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 the basics, the theoretical right and then there's another approach which is more like you just go into some type of piece of code you know and you you uh, you hack it you basically change different lines of code see what it's going to do you know try to do try to force something make it do something different and from what i've seen is is for people and especially young people who learn how to code this hacking way they seem to have a different kind of connection with code, you know, like it's much more functional, you know, versus this more theoretical, like, you know, approach, like what's your experience with code? Um, I mean, did your experience learning how to program and code affect or impact kind of your approach with Replit at all?
1: Yeah, hundred percent. When, uh, how I learned to code was, uh, by myself, uh, um, you know back in back in Amman Jordan uh, when I was six years uh, old um, my father who actually like wasn't didn't have uh, you know a lot of money um, but uh, was really into science and technology so he he actually took a loan and, and bought a computer really early on in 1993 and I was just enamored by this machine actually one of my earliest memories is of computers and uh, I remember, Uh, Kind of as he was using the computer, as he was unboxing it and plugging it in, and his friends was showing him, his friend was showing him kind of DOS commands, so CD, MKDIR, LS, whatever, uh, just creating files and what have you. I would like look behind their their shoulders and kind of try to learn. And then at night, after they leave, I would go boot up the computer again and try some of the things that I learned, (laughs) just by looking at them. And kind of play around with it and i didn't know what i was doing but i just kept trying and some things kind of worked um and after a while kind of my my parents tell me that i i became so good at computers that i actually um, you know was was installing software, writing software uh, and, and even took, took apart the hardware and and put it back uh, back together again. And so my in my earliest memories in my childhood, you know uh, learn by hacking is is how I learned programming and I think how everyone uh, how everyone should learn programming, uh, it's the most natural way. I think there's this, you know, that comes from math, this idea of, you know, theory first, because math is this thing that's not instantiated in the world. Math is you're in the, you know, world of ideals, you know, like I think Plato uh, talked about. Uh, Whereas programming, you're actually doing something tangible in the world. Although it has its roots in programming, in in math, it is an entirely new thing. And so when people try to when this new thing was happening, people did not understand it and they tried to cast it in, 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 in terms uh, that we use uh, for math. Um, and by the way, even math, it's better to teach it as a project-based approach. Um, not entirely hacking, but, you know, Seymour Papert is a, you know, one of, the, uh, one of the thinkers around education, computer science and, and programming. Uh, that I really look up to, and he was at MIT, at MIT Media Lab. They invented Logo. Logo was the first programming environment for kids. And um, Logo actually was born out of the need to teach mathematics. So they thought that teaching mathematics uh, in the way you were describing the theory first was not the best approach. And uh, Seymour Papert was not interested in teaching programming, but he was interested in teaching programming as a way to learn mathematics. Um, and so logo is a turtle that you program it, that kind of creates shapes like a circle. Uh, and he thought like, if, if you can write a program to create a circle, then you really understand a circle, what a circle is and what it feels like. And, uh, and that was, that was his approach. And I think, you know, that's the approach that we should teach everything, but most importantly, programming as this experiential kind of fast feedback loop cycle, um, and um, you know, uh it it kind of it, it's been with me since the since the start. So not only with my work on Replit, but when I went to work at Facebook, um, you know, in 2013, Facebook was um really a hot place to work in terms of technical uh it, the technical invention that was were happening there. So they had just released React. React is a new way of programming UI. It's actually a very, it's actually an amazing invention uh, that makes programming UI really easy. And when I joined Facebook, um, and I was really attracted to kind of uh, Android development because I felt like Android is one of those platforms that that's that's gonna that's gonna have the most amount of users because iphone was inaccessible to people and i really like technologies that are more accessible to more people and facebook was inv- investing in internet.org and um you know uh and uh, just like spreading technology uh and uh, smartphone access and internet access uh, throughout the world, we can criticize them for a lot of the things that they've done since then. But you know, one thing that I think they had a good idea about—I don't think they've achieved it—is this idea of internet.org of like you know, basic universal internet and computing access. So I was attracted to that, and what I found pretty quickly when I was messing around with Android at Facebook was the programming environments for Android. They were Java. Uh, they were like they you know they followed this slow you know development uh, cycle that i talked about earlier so what i got really excited about is like can we apply this like fast loop interactivity the repl style into mobile development so at facebook i joined a group that was working on bringing react to, uh, to native devices, Android and iPhone. And so uh, that's what we did. We worked on um, React Native. I was one of the early engineers on that team. And React Native now is the um, world's top cross-platform development environment for, uh, for mobile devices of, of all kinds. And it has that interactive uh, feedback loop. So it's really kind of, I feel like is the best way to learn and it's the best way to build. And, you know, that's what we're trying to bring to the world with Replit is, you know, you can you can learn to build and you can build to learn.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, two, you were at Facebook, what, 2013 to 16, was it? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I remember that time with React. Um, Facebook, it was really you know, at the center of mobile development at that time, you know, really pushing that through. Um, yeah, I mean, it reminds me a little bit about music. I mean, do, do you play any musical instruments by chance or...? uh no but i read this book uh
1: about um about music and programming okay. um that that was that uh really really inspired me uh, i think it was called the passionate programmer uh and uh and uh, he was writing from the perspective of a musician and uh he talked a lot about improvisation um and that reminded me of that like feedback loop but but I'd love yeah. to hear how you're thinking yeah, about yeah. it
0: yeah yeah um because like I learned uh piano um through kind of Suzuki theory method you know <laughs> and I hated it you know I just hated just the theory of Suzuki and later on um in high school I had a friend who just could improvise He would hear songs and just play them you know and just like make up stuff and I was like so fascinated by how you could do that so he taught me kind of the basics of chords and how to you know improvise all this stuff and it completely changed my whole view of music and with my kids one one of the things I have um, ages three and six two kids but one of the things I do is is I make music like really like I'm trying to um, rather than theory like I, I try to play around with it so I'll play a song with them and then I'll just like change the words or I'll I'll change the feel. I go, watch this. I'm going to make it more, more, um, more sleepy or more scary. I'll, you know, change the mood, you know, and I'll, I'll just do these slight adjustments to, to different songs or different things where they're just fascinated by, by music. You know, they'll sit there and just say, okay, what's next? What's next? You know, how can we change the music this way, this way? And I feel like that type of curiosity to see someone able to change something, and ch- and elicit certain emotions you know out of people and that whole experience like that's developing that hunger and that understanding of the potential of music in in a similar way with with programming it's like you come to programming and it's sterile it's just theoretic theories and numbers and just you know different lines of commands you need to learn and you don't understand like why do i need to do this right but when you see the power of code to create stuff out of thin air, you know, to create interactions and give information and to collaborate and you know, do all sorts of stuff, then you start to see like, oh my gosh, this is like incredible. And when you see like you could actually change the, each line and each section of code does different things, you know, and it, it has function and power, it completely changes the appreciation you know, of code and it gives you that motivation behind it you know, to do something with it, um, but I, I just, I just noticed that, um, that connection, in the sense that it feels like, you know, the whole theory of Replit is like, A, experience, dive into it, hack it, learn it, here's a bunch of examples, you know, and have fun with it, um, yeah, it, it, it's fascinating, I, I think, uh, with my kids, I think, you know, if they want to, you uh, know, um, Uh, learn coding which my six-year-old already has a lot of interest (laughs) in computers he's like designing actually like different screens it's like a like he has like 50 designs (laughs) all these computer screens great, but um yeah it seems like it's a fascinating way to to learn it's it's um something I wish I would have had as a kid you know to to learn programming
1: yeah can I show you a uh programming environment we're making for kids
0: yeah oh awesome yeah I'd be totally fascinated by it yeah sure let's go for it so this uh this is uh
1: not yet launched. Um, so this is a new programming environment we we're, we're building for kids. Um, so uh, this is a game we call like Flappy Mark. So it's like Flappy Bird, but uh, this character called Mark. Hmm. This this makes uh, the programming environment is different in that um, you can actually you have this like uh, image uh, drawer. So let me change. Um, mark to, to green and hit run again. And now I have Mark in green. Let me, um, I can, you know, I have sounds here. I can also um, pause the game. Uh, I can also like make it go slow. I can um, show. I can debug it and kind of uh, show it really easily. Uh, Also, have uh, we have this concept of uh, scenes? Uh, So the first scene is this core scene, and the syntax is very easy. So to add this character Mark, you just do add. You reference the sprite Mark. You add the scale. You add the position for it, and then. It, you know, th- to animate it, we have this thing called marked action. So every time, you know, every time the game loop uh, happens, you you run this function, and uh, you know, we have really nice easy functions like wave to make it kind of, uh, you know, do this th- this pulsing thing, and then we add the score right here, and I can change any part of it. So I can I can say score. Um, I'll run that again. Uh, uh, let me um, go back to our. So now we have score. So it's pretty easy, interactive kind of Rappel style. So here it says, "Key press space, go to main." So main is the is the main scene. So this is where actually most of the games happened. And uh, I'm not going to go through uh, the code, but it, uh, it's like 120 lines of code, and you can create something like Flappy Birds. Wow, awesome. And it has really nice functions and easy things like collides and uh, hit
0: and um, you know things like that. Mm-hmm. Awesome, man! Yeah, yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty crazy. Um, pretty cool to to be able to hack or hack that code, you know, as a kid, um, just to see what happens when you change different things, you know, and um, yeah, yeah, it's, uh... and just to
1: react like what you said, I think I think um, I think there's something quite natural about, uh, you know, you have a three and six year old, I have a one year old, so I've had the privilege that last year to kind of watch him in his you know very early uh, stages, and one thing you quickly realize is the world is their rebel in a way, right? They, they're interacting with the world and they're learning as they're going. Every uh, step of the way, they are um, experiencing the world and that's how they, they're learning. You know, in AI, uh, and I know you've done some videos on AI, but um, there's this AI technique called reinforcement learning. So the idea that you have an agent and they do, do an action in the world and then the world represents some data or some feedback and then the agent learns and then d- does the next action, given the thing that they learned. And I think really humans learn that way as well. And, you know, a lot of AIs AI inspired by humans because this is the most intelligent you know, being we know. Um, and you see it in kids all the time. Most of the learning is experiential, is actually touching things and hitting things and and uh, doing things and, and saying things and seeing their parents react to this or doing an action and saying, seeing the feedback from the parents uh, to them. So that's really the basics of, of learning. Yet when we go to school, we change the paradigm entirely. It becomes this oral thing. And, uh, you know... Um, I'm not entirely sure where that comes from, but like the way you describe your teaching, your kids music, is that incredibly exciting to like, to like change one thing and, and, um, and seeing the result is like, Oh, like I can do that too. Like you immediately think, okay, I can do that too. That was easy. Um, and then, okay, what else can I do? What else can I change? And it becomes this process where you're following your curiosity. And I think that really what we need to, you know, as society as a whole, we need to inspire children.
0: Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, I think that part of the truest learning is this hands-on, you know, and the freedom to be able to make mistakes and to just correct and, and to change things and you know, a kid, naturally, I don't think they, they're, they're scared to make mistakes. They're, they're just learning, you know, that curiosity is so strong. I think something about our education system, it's like it becomes this top-down, you know, compliance, like you obey it, you know, just listen to what we have to say, you know, you have to memorize what we tell you, and it becomes this, like, it it seems very much in conflict with this natural hands-on curiosity of just building and learning, and, um and it seems what's, one of the things that's fascinating about Replit is, you know, is it does seem to be coming from this more bottoms-up approach, you know, where it's not this top authority, authoritarian, you know, organization or place saying this is how you're going to learn it, you know, these are the steps and this is how it has to be. Rather, you're giving the tools, you're creating the playground, you know, for people to learn, not just kids, but you know, anyone who wants to learn how to code. Um, and um, yeah, it's uh, definitely, definitely fascinating stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think bottom-up is is the way to go in a lot of things Uh, from a business perspective, from a learning perspective, from change uh, perspective. um, Hierarchy is, of course, uh, important and serves uh, a role, but the hierarchy's role is to enforce order. Um, And order is important for society, um, but also it stifles innovation. Uh, the reason why innovation tend to happen from weird places, right? The reason Silicon Valley emerged in San Francisco Bay Area, 1970s LSD culture, it's pretty weird. Like, you know, the top industry in the world came from LSD culture, right? I mean, you know, Steve Jobs went to India and dropped LSD for months before he started Apple. Um, it's because, you uh, you know, uh, industries and technologies and, um, and societies organize in a way, um, to create order. And by creating order, they start maybe as incomplete thoughts and experimentation, but once they grow, they calcify and they become harder to change. And then change has to come from somewhere else. Now, Silicon Valley is now calcified, I think, and, um, and change is increasingly coming from somewhere else. So if you think about you know, what is the most disruptive technology in the past decade, it's Bitcoin, it's crypto. And where did Bitcoin come from? Nobody knows. I think the best way to describe it, it, ca- it came from the internet, right? Satoshi is a citizen of the internet, or they are. Um, and, um, and Satoshi is giving Silicon Valley a run for the money, right? I mean, so, Silicon Valley is still going to make a lot of money from, from Satoshi's inventions via Coinbase and other, other things like that. And everyone is looking about to hold some kind of crypto, but, um, but it's, it's a huge blow to, to the Silicon Valley community. Maybe a wake up call that, Hey, um, you know, uh, Maybe we're not the epicenter anymore, and maybe the internet is is now a new community, a new country, as it were.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's that's actually a fascinating uh, insight there because you know it feels like there's a element of rebelliousness, kind of counterculturalism that's needed to kind of create just the next big you know generational you know change, and that's what Silicon Valley had. Um, And it it does seem like a bit that that is changing, you know, it it feels like Silicon Valley has this pride of we're the best, we're the smartest, you know, the most able or capable, but it doesn't seem like they have the complete edge or, of course, you know, monopoly on this rebellious side anymore. It doesn't feel that that value is there, you know, as it was maybe 30 years ago, um, and I mean, it reminds me of kind of this crisis that I kind of see coming, where you have, you know, kids go through the education system, they go to college, they're they're the perfect student, you know, they've they've obeyed and learned everything that you know the school has taught them to do, but they they graduate and they're like, what do they do? You know, like no one's telling them what to do anymore, and they don't have the skill set or that that. Um, the drive to really create on their own they're just passive there's this passive you know uh, generation that's been just educated and they're believed they're taught to believe and they put their trust in the system and after they get out of the system they'll realize you know um, yeah the the system wasn't you know doing I think um, stuff in their best interest you know it was doing it the best interest of the system you know it's easiest to tell students to obey be quiet just you know Uh, Learn what we tell you to do because it's easiest to manage them. It doesn't mean that that's what they need You know when they when they graduate when they leave the system Um, But yeah, it's um, it's definitely uh, uh, a lot of interesting stuff
1: at some point it was it was rational to do so right Mm -hmm. so the Boomer maybe up to Gen X. uh, It was rational to follow the rails that are set up for you, right? so you Uh, Go through life and you do what you're supposed to do and you graduate and well, first of all You don't have a huge debt, you know, uh, college was not as expensive as it as it is today um, and and you know, uh, we had a lot of space for all sorts of professions the growth in mid-century America at least um, was uh, Was impressive that like everyone had had a had a path in life towards the American dream and, um, you know, it was rational to, to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you go, you join a company like IBM and you spend 30 years there and you go up the corporate ladder and you end up with a very good retirement. You end up with a home, you end up, uh, you know, uh, with a car and a home and a family. And it was a good life. Uh, but it was a small period in the history of humanity that that, that had happened. Right. And, yeah, uh, you know, people talk about you know what happened like why you know why is it not the same anymore um and the reality you need to actually flip the question uh what had happened in the like 1950s to 70s 80s that that made it so that you know this type of lifestyle is possible because the rest of human history wasn't the case right um, you had to strive and you had to go out of the system and you had to kind of work really hard and you had to be inventive and creative in order to make something out of yourself and your, your family. So now we're actually back to the mean in a way, right? Where you need to chart your own path and parents do still do not understand that. So we had this issue a few days ago, actually a week ago on Twitter, a parent, God bless his heart. I have nothing against him, but he seems like a great guy, wants the best for his children. He went on Twitter and he said that Replit is a brainwashing machine for teen coders. That's the quote. Yeah, it turns out he's really um, angry that his son is spending time coding on Replit instead of preparing for the IIT exam. So IIT is the MIT or Harvard of India. It's incredibly impossible to get, the, to get into it. Uh, it's a very good school, you know. Nothing against it. I think it's uh, commendable for anyone to to try to get into it. Uh, but but the, the kid didn't want to go into it. The kid was had a really good coding streak. He built an OS on Repl.it. He built a programming language on Repl.it. He could get a job anywhere. Facebook would hire him tomorrow. Um, and he didn't want to. He just didn't want to go uh, into IIT. And um, and his father blamed it on his you know addiction to coding. And so he went on Twitter and he said that. And then some other Indian parent tagged me and said, "You have to make a statement on that." So I made a statement I said, "Like, Replit team coders, don't spend all your time coding. Make sure you graduate with good uh, with good grades." And <laughs> what had happened is, turned out I, I you know, touched a very sensitive uh, uh, topic in in Indian culture. Uh, A debate that's happening where you have a new generation of entrepreneurs and programmers and hackers that are almost rebelling against their parents who are, uh, you know, applying a lot of stress to, you know, to make them go into schools and traditional paths like uh, IIT. Um, and a lot of people said, no, you shouldn't say that. Let the, let the kid code. Let him invent his own path and, and his own future. And that's just one example of, you know, how the new generation of hackers and entrepreneurs, like you said, are, you know, part of a new counterculture. Kind of I think in this case, it's different than Silicon Valley in a way because it's global. And it's. I think. I think the first time the frontier is the internet. The frontier is virtual. It's not actually a geographic area. And I think that's going to be really exciting for the next, you know, ten years. I think we're entering the the golden age of the cloud of the internet, uh, because you're going to see this decentralization of innovation throughout the entire world.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, does it? Do you think? Um, grow, you grew up in um Jordan. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, do you think growing up in Jordan has helped you to see more globally than perhaps if you would have just grown up in Silicon Valley um, does it help you maybe have more empathy to you know people with slower internet or with different you know opportunity, access to opportunities and does that kind of you know how does that i think impact you know your your view of Replic going forward
1: yeah um, that's a good question i um... I think not only because we grew up in Jordan, but, um, but I think, um, so my, my father, my father's family is from Palestine and they fled the, um, the 1967 war with Israel. Um, uh, or maybe it was the 48. So they, they left, they left, uh, in one of those wars, they left to Syria first, um, and, um, uh, I think it was 67, they left to Syria and, uh, my father, uh, uh my father grew up uh, in Syria, uh, and then went to Jordan, um, where they were trying to create a life for themselves. Uh, there are a lot of people still stuck in Syria, by the way, from 48 and, and 67, um, that, uh, Palestinians that, that actually don't have, uh like a national identity anywhere. Um, uh, and on my mother's side, they, they, they fled the Algerian war with, with, with uh, the French Algeria war in, in Algeria, which is, she's originally from Algeria and they went to Syria as well. And then from Syria, they also immigrated to Jordan and my, my mother and father met in Jordan. So they're, they're both, uh, refugee immigrants. And um, Jordan, you know, gave us a, a safe place. It's an island of stability amongst a sea of, of chaos. And um, I couldn't be more thankful for you know Jordan and the life it gave us, and uh, the king and the stability there. It's uh, you know um, you know we couldn't be we couldn't be more grateful for that. Um, but at the same time, we always felt. Like you know, my brothers and I, a little bit alienated from uh, any geographic area, because also you know, folks in Jordan, especially on the younger side, they also um, there's also some, a little bit of like you know, you know, uh, native versus versus uh, immigrant. Everywhere in the world, it's it's kind of like that. So uh, you you, ha- you you know, you had uh, to experience uh, like some bullying and some feeling of oh, I don't have rights to this land. It's not mine. Which what land is actually yours, and and we didn't feel, you know, as much affinity to anywhere else because you know they tell us story about stories about Palestine, but we never could visit Palestine, and um, and so um, you know and, and so it did feel like the internet was and and this global worldview did feel like something you could belong to and I could relate to a programmer in the United States or Egypt or anywhere else more than I could l- relate to like some people in my, in my class. And, um, and so I think, you know, that gave me that, that kind of worldview, um, uh, like this, this like global worldview, um, and affinity to, to, to groups and, and people that kind of think uh, like me and are excited by the same things that I am excited by uh, but that are not necessarily tied to any geographic area. area. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I know, um, yeah, I've actually visited, you know, Jordan and Syria and many other countries, you know, in the region. And it does, you know, it's, it's I think, um, in some ways, even though the world has become more connected, it also seems like there's a level of where the world is a little bit more segregated in a sense where it, it feels like some life, the lifestyles and the cultures of certain areas or countries in the world and the way people are brought up and living, it just f- feels like um, um, that that people in a sense are just like, we're connected to all this global internet, like, internet but I don't know. It feels like there's a disconnect to different cultures sometimes and countries, and it just feels like I notice sometimes. Um, for me, international travel, living abroad, it kind of opens my eyes to this world is much bigger, you know, than just one country. Especially, I think the U.S. has a, is this kind of more narrow-mindedness of just like U.S. is the whole world almost. That's sometimes I get that feeling, you know. Um, but when I hear about Replit and like India, I just like immediately. Like you know, knowing India, I just feel like, oh my gosh, that like it's gonna catch on fire. It just feels like that's like one of the the. the, It just it just matches so many things, you know about about that geography. Um, But yeah, definitely. Um, I'm curious um, if Replit was hugely successful in the next ten years beyond your you know your wildest dreams, what would happen? Like, what would be the scenario? What impact? Would your company, your product have, you think, in, in people's lives or in the world?
1: Um, I think uh, a lot more people will have access to to cloud computing, computing in general. So if you couple kind of something like Replit, uh, where you get a computer in milliseconds, right, in the cloud, you get infinity of them. Every Repl is a computer, and people are using Replit as just generic cloud computing teachers are using it as a file sharing tools. Some people are using it as a um, productivity tool and with the apps that you could build on it, it's just an extensible, uh, you know, system that that you can build on top of. Um, And, uh, you know, coupled with things like Starlink where, you know, uh, basically we're gonna blanket the earth with internet. So everyone will have access to internet. And then everyone will have access to Replit. And everyone will uh, have command over the cloud. And for one, I think um, a lot more people will be writing software for their individual ca- use cases and for their community. So I think you're going to see in a way, you know, we, we're talking a lot about global, but I think you're going to see in a way or also more local software. right? Right now, everyone is like buying software from Silicon Valley, but a lot of things could be written that is like more geographically relevant to the the group of people and more localized to their their needs and use cases. So you're going to see a lot more of that, a lot of like personal community based software. Um, I think uh, education will be, uh, like we talked about, will be mostly interactive. I think a lot of things will be learned through, uh, through computers and programming, even subjects that we don't necessarily think about in that way. You mentioned music and I think biology, chemistry, physics, all of that will be, uh, will have some interactive component where, uh, where, where kids are actually kind of building models and either using software or the real world to be able to, to learn these kind of things. I think information sharing will be, um, will will you know will just become ubiquitous uh it's going to be very easy to kind of share a file with anyone anywhere uh hop on a you know a collaborative session like all software will be written collaborative in real time with anyone in the world i think we're also going to see collaboration across uh people uh in different time zones and different geographies and um the, I, th- I think we're going to see a lot more early entrepreneurship. So we're going to see kids at uh, 13, 14, 15 uh, building businesses. We're probably going to f- see the first like billion dollar, you know, 13 year old uh, business. Um, kind of like what, what we're seeing with YouTube. You have like seven year old millionaires now. And we're going to see that with with software as well. Um, and um, and I think as, as part of all of that, I think uh, wealth will decentralize uh Throughout the world, um, we're working right now with a a startup called Monara, who um, whose like mission to connect uh, talents in places like Gaza with uh, companies in the U.S. and they they placed you know seven people at Google, right, working from Gaza <laughs> uh, at Google, and that's kind of crazy. So you're gonna see a lot more of that, um, especially with Replit, where it, it's pretty easy to onboard anyone onto your company. Uh, so you're going to see remote work, um, kind of become really mainstream and, uh, it's going to be easy to kind of, uh, find people to build software for you. So even people who don't know how to code or don't want to code, they can, uh, you know, there's going to be a a bigger, more active market for software contractors. And it's pretty easy to kind of contract people to, to build software for you. So again, this idea of like democratized software creation, um, and I, I think that will uh, have a significant significant impact on uh, wealth. Um, and I think you know more people will be um, will exit poverty and will have the means to change their lives and have the tools to build a better life. Um, kind of like from from a from a, a platform perspective, um, we're going to see uh, a new way of of building software as well. Like we're um, we already seeing this idea of um, like remix culture. I think uh, you can think about Replit as you know um, similar to TikTok. Uh, on TikTok, um, you go to the site and you see a video, and you react to it or you remix it. Pretty easily from your phone. I think also we're going to see a suite of software tools that you can you can go to Replit and you can one click remix and edit and make it yours. Um, and uh, and you know we're going to see this like you know new wave of collaborative software making where it's like based on forks and remix of forks and remix. And, and, you know uh, and, um, and that's going to be pretty exciting. Uh, Also, I think uh, it's gonna be a lot easier to like monetize your software. It's gonna be easier to monetize your infrastructure. I think we're gonna see people kind of spin up, um, you know, databases or, um, you know, authentication systems or crypto or what have you on on top of Replit and other developers will be able to use them. So you have this, you know, tight feedback loop between infrastructure, uh, infrastructure companies and and developers, um, and um, and yeah, I, I think software will continue to get easier to make, and I think people will be making it from their phones. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, I think uh, you mentioned Starlink. I think um, that's going to be crazy. You know, <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> this is going to get high speed internet access to the most rural population of the whole world. Combine that with all the tools that the internet brings, including, let's say Replit, but also all the tools that people need to b- build a business too, you know, um, and they're just getting easier and better, you know, you, you get Stripe in the mix and you get other stuff and you just, you just have like everything you need to to, to do international business, you know, um, yeah, Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I'm wondering, um, you talk about wealth, um, kind of uh, the impact on wealth, so you know lots of people getting out of poverty learning skills finding you know um pretty large markets etc um what would you say to to those who might have the critique that well it will benefit certain people who are more techie or more let's say wanting to to code and to get into that field but then it won't benefit, it'll, it'll be adversely effective, to, uh, impactful to those who aren't in those fields. So in other words, will the wealth gap actually increase over time because, you know, software and tech is eating up all the wealth. And if you choose not to go in that field, you know, it's, or if it's just less tech, right, you're not exposed to that wealth and that type of you know, um, wealth generation that let's say software and tech does. So basically our programmers gonna take up all the world, you know, eat up all the world and our companies that are software focused, tech focused so much, AI focused, are they the big winners and not everyone else? Or can it be decentralized somehow? Can it is there a way, is there optimism to be had where somehow this stuff will be distributed and somehow we'll have all tides rising?
1: Um I think, you know, it's easy to have this mental model model or dichotomy today of tech versus non-tech companies, but I think it's an outdated model of the world because I think, uh, you know, software is in everything. And so, uh, in a sense, everything is a tech company and in another sense, nothing is a tech company, right? Um, Like, why is Airbnb a tech company? Why is it considered a tech company? Because they use software. But their hotel business, um, and uh, you know, in the same way, uh, Uber uh, and and other things. I, I think the reason why certain companies were considered tech companies is because um, software is pretty hard to build, right? So uh, Uber had to invent uh, logistics software uh, in order to, 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 to build a taxi company, but, um, in the future where, you know, maybe logistics software, you would have a library on NPM to, to build a logistics, uh, company, or you have an infrastructure as a service or, or an API, um, then anyone can build that kind of thing. You'll still have some more value crew in the platforms, um, but but I think even the platforms have a, this decentralizing aspect of them. So uh, yes, you know YouTube is you know YouTube itself makes a lot of money, but the YouTube creators makes a lot more make make really a lot more money. And you know, like I'm not sure exactly what the stats are, but like Apple probably like pays developers. Um, I'm not sure uh, if they make more than the developers or developers as a whole. Like so, uh, platforms generally like create more wealth than they capture themselves, and so they de kind of decentralize wealth in that in that aspect. Um, and uh, and so in the future, you know, I think that dichotomy will increasingly subside, and we'll see software. Um, as part of uh, as part of everything. Okay, in, in the same way that like um, that uh, like you know if if you look at the you know again like last century America or the century before that when steel was considered a technology like steel was like steel mills were considered advanced technology they were high tech right. Um, right now, we don't consider them high-tech, we consider them like low-tech industrial infrastructure technology, right? And we, we don't even say they're technology. Like t- when you say tech today, you mean software, but tech it used to mean uh, steel. And before that, tech used to mean um, uh, trade even. And, and so, so technology keeps changing because technology is whatever makes us do more with less, um, I think as software gets democratized and, and, and gets into everything, then, uh, then you know, it's um, – then we, we'll change how we talk about things. But there will probably be a new frontier for tech. Um, a new frontier for making, you know, being, you know, you know, building something and, and getting rich quick and like accumulating uh, more and more wealth. And, and, you know, that's not a terrible thing because if you think of uh, wealth as wealth creation, that means it's like not a zero sum game, right? You're creating wealth, you're making things better, you're generating a lot of wealth and you're capturing some of it. In that sense, you're making humanity as a whole better and you're you're capturing some of uh, some of that wealth. Um, But there is a type of wealth capture that is not 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 productive. Um, And, you know, you typically see that in in governments and maybe some old financial institutions where they're not uh, doing uh, productive work. And they're just um, and maybe all technology companies where, you know, they're focused on um, uh, on uh, policies and they're focused on uh, regulatory regulatory capture. Um, and that's I think that form of like non-productive wealth capture is is the bad thing. Um, I think if we're if we're creating a lot, a lot of wealth and some people are getting really rich, I don't think it's bad. Uh, as long as there 's equal access to everyone for everyone to do that, um, but I think the kind of wealth captured that we need to pay attention to is the is is the kind and by the way, that kind is what we talked about is the calcification and the lack of dynamism in certain industries as they grow and become more traditional they ha- they kind of fall prey to that sort of capture
0: what would you say um what would you say i mean along those lines let 's say We talk about, we bring up AI and we say, okay, the next 10 years, 15 years, let's say AI gets more mature. It starts to, and let's say hypothetically, there's certain companies that just excel in AI and the founders and the investors reap a lot of that wealth creation, you know, that those companies, let's say, create. And in turn, these companies disrupt and AI disrupts a lot of jobs that people had that AI is taking over. Let's say it's a truck driver, or let's say it's a retail clerk, or let's say even it's an accountant, or even you know people. There's there's so many like it's almost endless. You know the, the jobs that AI eventually could disrupt. So you have this dual factor where you have wealth creation AI is creating, but it's being captured by mostly the investors, let's say, um, and the owners. And then you have the disruptive factor, you know, where jobs are being disrupted. Um, yeah, I, I have a, I have yeah, some thoughts. yeah, what are your thoughts? Um,
1: do, do you know, do you know uh, this job called knocker opper no, no. So knocker opper um, he's like a human uh, alarm clock. So uh, you used to pay this guy and he would come and he'd have a stick and he would knock on your window at a certain time as a way of an alarm clock, right? Uh, you know, back in Jordan, we, we had someone in Ramadan that comes uh, with a, um, uh, you know, with a huge kind of drum and kind of uh, wake people up to, uh, uh, to eat a little bit of food before kind of sunrise where you start fasting. And so you had these jobs of people that were waking people up. It was an industry of waking up people, right? And and then you had the alarm clock. And the alarm clock disrupted the waker uppers (laughs) or knocker uppers. Um, And, you know, if you're living in that, your view is that, holy shit, like all these people are losing their jobs. It's a catastrophe. Now, the alarm clock industry ended up generating uh, orders of magnitude more jobs than the uh, sort of knocker opera industry. And um, and you see that story, you know, you had the Luddites who were going around and, like, knocking out, like, looming machines that were, you know, creating clothes, automating the creation of clothes. Um, you definitely have a lot more people in the clothing industry now than when you had in the, during the, the Luddite era. So you see it played out. Uh, in history, uh, where, you know, there's a disruption that happens, but it ends up creating more jobs and more wealth uh, th- than before. Now, the collateral damage, which is the people that built deep expertise in an area that by no fault of their own, uh, becomes irrelevant. And that's tragic. That's, that's pure tragedy. Um, and you know, this is where philanthropy, maybe some government, uh, intervention comes in, in, and, and just as a society, like we need to take care of these people. Like, you know, it's not their fault at all. Like they did all the rational things and they built the expertise, they built a life, they built all of that. Um, and a new technology emerged and made their jobs irrelevant and, um, that's tragedy and uh in the long term the point that i'm making is that it's better for everyone better for humanity in the short term there's going to be some damage and the way you fix that by re-education by some some form of uh some form of safety nets um philanthropy and things like that
0: yeah yeah i mean it's i mean it's, it's a it's an interesting you know kind of dilemma because um if you were to follow, let's say, the the tech um, exuberance and optimism, let's say, twenty twenty five years ago, when the internet internet was sprouting, that you know the whole idea was this is going to lift everyone's boat. Everyone's going to benefit from the internet and the computer revolutions, and it seemed quite obvious. But we come to twenty twenty one, and it seems like there is a large class uh, and largely a lower class or lower to lower mid to mid-class mid, mid class, middle class that that feels ostracized that feels abandoned from the system in a sense like they don't live near the bay area or a urban center they don't you know work for a tech company they're not invested in the stock market etc and their incomes have just totally been you know stalled and it's difficult for them to to find work and to find any upward mobility um, and there's it's almost becoming in the US um, a national crisis in a way right we have kind of this political divide and and contention and it's something that was wasn't i think forecasted you know 20 25 years ago like we thought the whole tech industry thought that everything would be you know, would solve itself or everyone's would b- b- benefit i'm just curious as tech tech perhaps this pace of innovation as it perhaps could increase with you know let's say ai and all this stuff like do you wh- do you have like what's your kind of root of optimism that it won't worsen that we won't have a larger lower lower you know to middle class who's getting more ostracized who's getting more frustrated um, is the hope do we just need to educate more of you know our younger generation teach them the skills open up new opportunities or um, or is it a safety net government you know intervention some type of you know support or what's what's your kind of take on it
1: You know, uh, a dear friend of mine, uh, Douglas Roshkoff, who's uh, like a media theorist, uh, as they call him, he coined the term, I think, viral, and he's like one of the early like cyberpunk people. And uh, he wrote a book, he wrote a few books that I'm uh, I'm a fan of, uh, like one of them is called Program or Be Programmed, where he talks about, um, you know, you either learn the skill of programming, or you're going to be programmed. Um, So basically, like, you know, we're being programmed by social media companies to consume more ads and this, like, Skinnerian fashion. And, uh, And his point was, if you learn programming, you know that there are people that are building programs to get you addicted to certain behaviors. And then he wrote another book called Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. And so, you know, this Bay Area... A controversy where uh, San Francisco natives were, you know, getting priced out of their homes, and uh, they, looking at something to to blame, they found the you know tech guys with their hoodies and their phones and their whatever uh, waiting for their air conditioned bus um, uh, to go to go to their campus where they had free lunch, um, and and you had these. These like you know native city folks uh, feeling envious uh, and uh, blaming them for for the changes that are happening in San Francisco. So they started throwing rocks at the Google bus. And uh, in the in the book, he talks about a lot of these issues. Um, He arrives at different conclusions that that I would arrive at, but um, but I think I think you're absolutely right, and I, I do agree that the um the the there was this vision of computers as freedom machines instead we arrived at more of a there's this uh you know film uh producer who uh produced uh films like brazil and uh terry gilliam i think monty python terry gilliam or gilliam Something like that. And, uh, uh, you know, a big uh, part of, you know, his th- themes in the movies, 12 Monkeys, I'm sure a lot of people have, have watched these things, is this a uh, huge techno-bureaucratic uh, 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 operations that are basically corporation slash government kind of all, uh, you know, tied together and, like, are restricting uh, people freedom and kind of... Uh, uh, you know, as opposed to an Orwellian way and a kind of Brave New World type of way, where they're getting us kind of um, addicted on 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 TV and soma and and certain technologies, and so uh, you know, you had these two visions of the world, right? You you had the uh, the kind of you know. Um, you know, Silicon Valley, LSD culture, you know, computers as freedom machines, and you had the bureaucratic computer AI, communist, uh, you know, corporate, uh, corporatist system. Uh, I think we're a little bit more on the you know, communist machine than we are on the kind of pro freedom machine. Uh, and, and I think a uh, replet exists uh, to, to shift a little bit back uh, towards individual empowerment. You, know, you mentioned companies like stripe and other companies uh, here that allow you to um, to um, to to you know create things and and give you the tools to to the everyday person to to improve their life and I have um, the optimism that I have is because I see entrepreneurs every day thinking about this problem and recognizing this problem and trying to build tools not for the enterprise to get them more power but for the Everyday person, At Replit. We, you know, we made a conscious decision to go after the hobbyists, to go uh, to go support educators, to go support individual people and in small teams, and you know, we left kind of like millions of dollars on the table that that you know if we could have gone in into enterprise. Now we think in the long term that has trillions of dollars impact in terms of total wealth created, um, but in the short term, like we could have been a much more kind of profitable, faster growing company if we went and like, you know, apply the tools that we built to enterprise. But instead we want to support, uh, we want to support people. And the reason I'm optimistic is because I'm working on this and I have to opt have to be optimistic because that's what we're trying to achieve. And the other thing is I, I see a lot of entrepreneurs that are recognizing this problem and are trying to like go after it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Um, are you, do you, are, so are you kind of, um, is your focus more on the, the, hobbyist the learner the the small company the indie developer or just is it more geared toward that or um or are you do you guys have ambitions with the enterprise field as well is it is, is it just a little bit later on
1: yeah it, we do we do have ambitions there um they're actually knocking on our door quite a bit, and we're probably going to release a business plan soon um you know where we're going to put our foot down is that we're not going to, like you know, implement their all their pet features and like, um, and uh, you know, go down the rabbit hole of a lot of issues uh, in the enterprise market. Um, so uh, if it's a revenue stream that is congruent with our vision, uh, then then why not? And I think it is. Uh, so we'll probably go into that. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, like the everyday worker at these Companies deserve to get good tools, and, and we want to do
0: that. Mm. Um, you uh, had a tweet um, not too long ago, I think a month ago. You said, um, our most direct direct competitors are Roblox and Minecraft. Few understand this. Um, what do you mean by that?
1: So I, I think Roblox is uh, going uh, IPO tomorrow or today. Uh, today, yeah. Um,
0: actually, yeah today, today,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, and if you look at, if you look at Roblox, it's quite fantastic. Like you have developers, again, making millions of dollars. A lot of them are teenagers and they're kind of, you know, in the same space and vision that I'm talking about. They're giving tools to, um, and, and the reason kids matter is because if you build for kids, then you sort of like build for you, then, you know, your tool is approachable. There are a good litmus test for that. And, um, and so, you know, Roblox, uh, Roblox did that and scaled that, and now they have an ecosystem where anyone can build software and sell it quite easily. Um, now it's limited to games, um, and I think Replit can can be a lot bigger because we're um, we're not limited to games. You can build anything on Replit. Uh, so, in that uh, regard, uh, Roblox is, uh, is similar to Replit and Minecraft in the creation aspect. Um, Another reason they're, they're, they're potential competitors is because it, you know, the, the Replit programmer uh, sit, sits down on their computer and they have limited sort of time and attention span and energy, and they could either spend it playing games or making and learning how to make software on Replit. So in that way, we're competing for attention uh, with them. Um, and uh yeah, so this is like you know two ways we're competing with them that is more direct than when people ask us like, how do you compete with Microsoft, right? I mean, yes, in some sense we compete with Microsoft, but uh, it does feel a little bit further away than Roblox and Minecraft.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, I wanted to ask you about your Y Combinator experience. I mean, for those who don't know, Y Combinator is this, you know, kind of the Harvard of Silicon Valley incubators of the world is, world's incubators. but um, yeah, I've been a big, you know, hacker news reader and fan for many, many, many years. Um, and, you know, I've read all of Paul Graham's essays. Um, I'm curious, like, you guys entered the Y Combinator program. It, it was a 2018 or so? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I noticed it was after three failed attempts where you guys applied okay. and, and you didn't get in. Um, you, you, you were saying how the... You, the first time where you had a meeting, super early on, where a YC combina- Y Combinator partner was saying that your your product is just kind of like a toy, right? And you should maybe join something else. Um, it's interesting because like a lot of times, um, the ethos of Paul Graham is and Y Combinator is the most successful things t- um, appear like a toy in the beginning. You know, um, can you comment or just kind of share your your whole? idea was it a struggle like did did you have struggles where you're like am i build, building just a toy or did you have this faith confidence that no, this is something that might look like a toy, but it's gonna be really, really huge has yeah. huge potential
1: yeah um so uh I think like just one comment on on YC partners like you know there are a lot of them and not all of them uh think alike and the other thing is that. There are concepts that are hard. Even when you think you know them, you still make mistakes around them, right? So one one concept that your audience knows, compounding, right? So compounding is is uh, like I can explain compounding in a couple of sentences, but nobody builds good intuition on compounding. And when we were uh, uh, when we were uh, kind of raising some money for for Replit early on, and we had this strong kind of like you know month over month and year over year growth. But it wasn't, you know, the same amount that you would see from Facebook, right? Uh, but they didn't kind of project forward that, like, you know, we're going to be – we're going to have six, seven, eight million users in the future because we were in the, like, hundreds of thousands. So they didn't understand that, that that compounding aspect. And investors, their whole purpose in life to understand compounding. And yet they they were still kind of misled by the small base. Um And, uh, and so that's, that's one aspect, the principle you're talking about, which I think Peter Thiel came up with, and I think Paul Graham, uh, expounded on is this idea of good ideas exist at the intersection of, uh, things that look like toys, uh, but have a potential, huge market, um, And so like one example of that uh, is is PCs, like early Apple looked like a toy. Uh, It was only used in education and by teenagers. And it ended up uh, being a huge uh, company. Microsoft's first product was BASIC. BASIC was a toy programming language and ended up being a huge company. And so uh, people have missed out on that. Uh, Investors have missed out on that a whole lot of time. And it's actually, Uh, You know, there's theory behind it. It's uh, Clay Christensen's um, Innovator's Dilemma. Uh, The Clay Christensen's kind of formulation is from the perspective of an executive. The executive is doing everything right, they're serving their customers, they're listening to their customers, yet they fail. (laughs) You know, uh, Nokia CEO, when they fail, he said something. We did everything right, but we failed, right? And the same thing w- is what uh, Christensen uh, describes: is that uh, is that you know the, the 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 counterintuitive nature of disruption is that you wouldn't notice it until it is actually threatening to you, until it's too late. Um, and um, and the reason is because uh, you know uh, toy te- technologies. Uh, early on, look like toys, uh, but have a huge potential to to overtake the uh, the upper market. And like uh, Christensen's uh, like your book talks about not only technology industry, but talks about st- uh, steel mills. Actually, talks about mini mills and how they disrupted really big big mills. And so it's it's an interesting read for folks who are interested in that kind of stuff. Um, now as for um, you know our experience with um with YC and, and, and Paul Graham, you know, of course, Paul Graham was, uh, was, uh, you know, hugely influential, uh, for us. I mean, he wrote, he wrote the essays on Lisp. Lisp is a programming language that invented the concept of a REPL. So I kind of learned about this kind of stuff from him. So in a way, uh, Replit was, should have been the quintessential YC company. They should have really got us, accepted us from, from the first, uh, time we applied um but it took paul graham to discover us on hacker news so that he actually pulled some strings in yc to, to get us in
0: yeah i, I read uh, your blog post about that so uh paul graham after you know you guys get rejected a few times uh, paul graham notices you on hacker news he asks sam altman right now op- open ai to to meet with you so you meet with him and you're surprised that sam altman is getting everything that you're talking about right like on a very detailed level and then you correspond with Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator. There's a few months of emails. And one thing that struck out was saying, you were saying like Paul Graham was saying, no, like focus on kind of your core user. Like what was that? What was your situation? Were you kind of a bit divided, kind of wanting to go multiple markets? And and did that advice help you to kind of, you know, focus?
1: Yeah. So, um, So like you said, like you asked me, like, what gave you confidence throughout this, this time? And the the answer is like, um, yes, you have this strong conviction because of this idea of democratizing programming, but every step in the way people give you doubt. You try to hire people, they say, like, you know, what are you doing, like, you should go to an enterprise market, you go try to raise money, they tell you the same thing, you try to, you know, even explain to friends, like, some of my be- best friends didn't get it and thought that I was wasting my life. And so at some point, that kind of doubt gets into you and, and maybe changes your plans a little bit. Um, I think one thing that was going for me is that I had multiple successes uh, based on the same hypothesis uh, and same kind of generator function. Um, so Code Academy, I'm not sure if I mentioned that, but I was, you know, uh, founding engineer there. Now Code Academy is doing hundred million dollar ARR doubling year over year. You know, Coursera just filed this as one, I think at a $5 billion valuation, which much slower growth rate. And so you could tell that Code Academy is doing really well. Um, and, um, and uh, React Native became you know, the top uh, mobile development framework in the world. So basically everything I worked on had gone on to have a huge impact. And so when I went into Replit, I already had that confidence of like, okay, I need to I need to kind of follow through with my passion because I I know what I'm doing and maybe the world is wrong, right? And so you had that like chip on your shoulder type mentality in order to kind of go in to the fight and like despite what everyone says, you you gotta keep going. But, but Paul Graham was hugely influential because. What he noticed was our core audience was, was the, the teenager crowd. And he says, he said, look, like every major computing platform in the world, be it PC, web, and what have you, had started with their core audience being the teenagers that are coming up, the future programmers and entrepreneurs. If you build for that audience and if you grow in that audience, in 10 years, you're going to be the, you're going to be the default uh, computing platform. And that kind of stuck with me because it kind of validated uh, a lot of uh, the way we're doing things. It also mapped uh, very well on what we're talking about in, ter- in terms of disruption theory and, and things like that. And it was more fun. Like you know, we wanted to build things differently. We don't want to go to, like I said, to enterprise market, and then your roadmap is dominated by your sales department, not by not by the hacker or not by the developer that you're building for. And that gave us a lot more confidence. And of course, Paul Graham kind of opened a lot more doors for us. Uh, and so that certainly was a, was a great experience. Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting. Um, uh, you've noticed or you've said in the past that you want to make cloud uh, as easy as you've made coding. So you want to make you know deploying to the cloud using I guess cloud services, um, um, storing, you know, accessing the cloud, etc., easy. When I hear that, I, I think of Heroku. You know, where Heroku is just in the past ten years just an amazing platform that allowed so many people to to more easily get on the cloud. Like at our company, you know, it's been a lifesaver. You know, we're you know deploying to Heroku saves us a lot of time even though there's still a lot to do um do you see yourselves like your company competing with heroku at all um down in the future
1: yeah i mean i think we already do i mean uh right now i used to um i used to when i have an app idea or internal tool i want to build you know i open up my editor and uh type it out and run it and then Deploy to Heroku, uh, push it to Heroku. Instead, now I open Replit and it's instantly in the cloud. I don't even have to deploy it to remove that step. Heroku's uh, like, you know, model uh, was uh, something hugely innovative at the time, but I think it's now uh, outdated. Uh, and I think Replit is, the, is really the new model for the cloud. As opposed to having, I wrote this article a few days ago. It's called On Hosting from Your Editor. And I talk about. I talk about this uh, you know, this bifurcation that, that happens when you're hosting on something like Heroku. So you have your editor, you're typing your editor, you're seeing your creation come to life. And then after you've done that, you push it onto GitHub for storage, and then you push it onto Heroku for deployment. Uh, But the moment you did that, you create this distance between you and your creation. It becomes harder to maintain, harder to debug, so on and so forth. With Replit, we collapse all that into a single interface. So where you type your code is where your thing is being hosted, and that has a lot of downstream benefits. It has some disadvantages right now, we're fixing uh, those things. But I recommend everyone, if your instinct is to like go deploy to Heroku, try just uh, try building on a Repl.it, and I think uh, I think you'll find a world of
0: difference. Yeah, no, it makes makes sense. I think my my main concern or or question would be like like on Heroku, I'm able to access so many third party you know plugins and services, whether it's Elasticsearch or you know Amazon S3 or just you know Mongo and just different databases and different services. And like, you know, we probably use probably like 15, you know, or so these plugins in our, in, in our um, company. Um, do you have a roadmap where you guys are gonna be adding more and more kind of connecting services and, and things to your platform?
1: Yeah, so the first phase of, of, of Replit uh, was about, uh, you know, removing that setup, right? So we did that. Uh, we did this idea of like you know, don't set up and and just get started immediately. Uh, the second phase was about um, removing that hurdle from deployment. So you wrote your code, it's already deployed. That's it. I think the third phase is now about, okay, I've used these basic tools for building something. Now I have customers, I have scalability issues. I have, um, uh, you know, I I, I want to grow my app. I have multiple apps. I want to connect them together. So what are the set of abstractions and tools and utilities that allow you to do that? And I think this is where you can't build everything. And this is where you'd want to open up for the community to start building infrastructure and plugins for you and hopefully make it very profitable for them to do so as well. So I think that's definitely uh, on the roadmap, uh, you know it's probably not this year, but next year will be, that'll be uh, available.
0: Okay, perfect. Um, Yeah, I mean, do do you ever, um, like in developing new features, do you ever just like come alongside maybe some like developer or person who's really utilizing your platform, but can't maximize it, they're frustrated in certain areas and do you come alongside say alongside them and say okay, what are your biggest areas of frustration? We want to solve them, or do you do more of like a more general approach where you're just taking feedback from a lot of people and kind of taking you know the, the most both. popular features?
1: Yeah, yeah, both. You want high bandwidth feedback, and you want uh, you know uh, you want fast feedback across a large population of of people. So. Uh, You kind of want to like look at the data, look at the metrics, but they don't tell the full story. And then you kind of drill down and really talk to people. There isn't a day, you know, at most a week that goes by when I'm not talking to to users, right? So uh, we have a Discord server, I'm hanging out with them. They're on Twitter, they're, you know, tweeting at me, messaging me, they're in my email. you know uh, my co-founder haya is um a designer and um her whole thing was talking to people like that's her superpower right she listens very well and that's what she does and she she instilled instilled that in the dna of our culture and our company and so we're all about talking to users and we have different ways of talking to users sometimes it's surveys um sometimes it's uh, it's uh, it's like one on one conversations but you you got to do all of that
0: yeah interesting um uh, final topic is uh, how is it working with with your wife as a co-founder? Like for example, um, my actually for me, I actually co-founded my, my company back in two thousand eight with my wife as a co-founder. Oh wow! Yeah, and yeah, it was um, it just seemed like a, a little bit of a strange kind of out of the box thing. It seems like there would be some prejudices against that, you know, from from typical investors and people. Um, how have you navigated that? Like when you look back, what are the pros and cons? How has it been helpful? How has it been challenging?
1: Yeah, there's, there's definitely prejudices that, that we've run into. Um, but, uh, I mean, you look at, uh, Y Combinator, um, eh, the founders are Paul and Jessica. They're married. Um, and it's, it's becoming more and more, uh, you know, natural, even fashionable in some cases to do so. Um, especially when something is your life's work, right? Like with Paul and Y Combinator and Austin Replit, it's been with us since the start. And this is what we're working on. It just makes sense to be part of our lives. And that makes it easy to be more and more invested in this thing. Um, and, um, The thing that I tell you entrepreneurs all the time is that don't fall into the sort of the pageant show for uh, investors. Don't try to change yourself or your company in order to look more attractive to to investors. Um, Sadly, most investors are followers. They follow trends. Whatever is fashionable is fashionable. And like you know, YC had its share of dogma as much as anyone else. There, you know, they normalize a lot of things, but they also, you know, had this um, had this uh, you know dogma against solo founders. You know, and you know between you know Elon Musk and and Jeff Bezos and 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 these folks, like there's a lot of really successful solo founders in the world, right? Um, so investors, even the most enlightened of them, have dogmas and have things that that blinds blinds them you know uh peter teal opens his book zero to one with this phrase i think from tolstoy or something like that that um all, all good families are alike, but dysfunctional but dysfunctional families are dysfunctional in their own ways or something like that and then he 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 extrapolates that to to startups and uh, and basically says that you know there uh, you know there was only one Zuckerberg the next Zuckerberg is not gonna start a social network uh, at Harvard there was only uh you know uh, one Jack Dorsey the next Jack Dorsey wouldn't be starting Twitter in San Francisco uh, and basically I th- I think maybe Pierre he'll figure it out but I think uh, he at least articulated the idea that um that like entrepreneurship is these like, you know, black swan events, in the the words of Nassim Taleb, It's the, you know, everyone, every iconic company is born in a very different way, in a very different set of circumstances. And the culture around Silicon Valley is one of pattern matching. And you basically sort of pattern match to look like Zuck, to look like uh, whomever. And um, my view has been like, You know, I'm me and we are we and, um, and, um, even if it's tough, we'll just tough it out and we'll not change who we are to, in order to, to look good in front of investors. Mm
0: -hmm. Makes sense. Um, has COVID at all changed your attitude toward like being stationary in, let's say San Francisco or the Bay area versus, you know, I'm guessing is your team working remotely mostly right now?
1: Yeah. Yeah. we still have our sf office people go there hang out and eat food and things like that but uh, work is happening online i think work will happen online uh you know i think you're gonna have all these different models for work but ultimately work is in the cloud right i mean part of the reason why we have offices is because we had to be co-located with our paperwork now our paperwork is in the cloud and to co-locate in the cloud right that's that's the kind of the future um And, um, and, um, how COVID changed, how we view the world, uh, you know, continuing on the Peter Thiel, uh, kind of quotes, uh, he, uh, had this quote recently where he said, uh, 2021 is the first year of the 21st century. Uh, and I thought that was, that was on point. Um, take, take my father. Again, as I said, my father is uh, is uh, you know very interested in science and technology and has been for a long time. But even him, he tells me, in 2020, I learned so much about computers, the internet, and the cloud, more than the entire last decade together. So he learned how to get more productive with the cloud, more than an entire decade in a matter of months, and. COVID is this narrow passage that we're passing through that will transform how we work forever, or at least for centuries. Um, and so it's, you know, you know, it's sad, tragic event, but I think it's going to be looked back on as, um, as the event that, um, made the internet, uh, you know the way where work happens.
0: Mm-hmm. Makes sense, um, Amjad. I want to thank you for a fascinating conversation uh, across many, many topics, and it's been great. Um, yeah, I love this stuff. You know, I mean, just the intersection of so many different fields and and the future is so open um, and um, people like you with Replit are definitely shaping the future and it's exciting to, to learn about what you're doing. So thank you for your time. Uh, where can people fo- uh, follow you and find you um, online?
1: Uh, I am uh, on Twitter and most other places as amasad, A-M-A-S-A-D, and on Twitter you can also find my email, my bio, my link to the, my website. Um, and, uh, yeah, you give me a shout out. I try, I try to read everything and even respond to a lot of it. And, uh, again, yeah, thank you. Thank you for this, uh, Dave, you know, it's, it's rare that, uh, you know, um, you get to discuss, uh, like these wide range of topics, uh, and, and have someone like you who has deep interest in every one of them. So, uh, so I'm so happy to be uh, on
0: here. Awesome. And I'll go ahead and link to Replit's website so you guys can try out the service and, and start coding. Yeah, that'd be awesome. All right, thank you. and we'll see you. Thanks. All right.